the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. The Bible says that Gideon did it in the cover of night because it says he was afraid of his family, but nevertheless he did it. So Gideon knows about idols. And he knows how to smash them, and he knows how to worship the true and living God, and here he does nothing about it. He actually makes the idol, the people worship it, and he doesn't do anything about it. And idolatry here becomes something that mars the life and legacy of Gideon. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Judges. What legacy will you leave behind? Will it be a righteous one, inspiring future generations to live a godly life? Or is the way you live now going to cause the younger generation to stumble? In today's message, Pastor Gary teaches through the life of Gideon, from his humble beginnings to his not-so-humble end. He ends up falling into the same sin his family struggled with, but he brings the whole nation down with him. Perhaps in your life there's a sin that seems like it's no big deal, but take note, it will affect those who look up to you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part one of today's message titled, Finish Well. Let's take our Bibles, go to the book of Judges, please. We are continuing in our study through the book of Judges. We're going to be in chapter 8, so let me give a little bit of a background leading up to our text and then jump further into our study. But so far, we've been looking through the book of Judges and studying some of the major and minor judges. And so far, we have seen Othniel was a major judge. Ehud was a major judge. Shamgar, I put his name in lowercase letters because he's considered a minor judge. There were six major judges, six minor judges through the land of Israel, and Shamgar was a minor judge. Deborah, she was a major judge, and then we took a look also at Gideon, who was considered as well a major judge, and we are going to see more about his life today. We're not done with the story of Gideon. Now, I don't know about you, but I find Gideon's story to be one of the most inspirational stories in the Bible, because when you consider how he just starts out as this timid young man who is threshing wheat in a wine press because he's afraid of the Midianites... And that God sees him, not for who he is, but for who he shall be, because God always sees our potential. It's a wonderful thing. And God calls him a mighty warrior. 
a mighty warrior, even though at that point Gideon was not yet even a warrior. And then God raises him up to be a judge. And as this valiant war hero, Gideon will take a small company of 300 soldiers. And with, of course, the help and the leading of the Lord, he will defeat this vast army of the Midianite. Very inspirational story. And then, as a result of his leadership, the people of Israel enjoy peace for 40 years, the Bible says. And I wish I could say, and they lived happily ever after. But that's not the way the story of Gideon ends. The last part of Gideon's life, not as inspirational as the first part. I wish that this last part weren't even in the Bible. I wish that it would just end with Gideon as this valiant warrior who just kind of rode off on horseback in the sunset, and that was the end of the story, but that's not the end of the story. God still includes another chapter and a half about Gideon's life, and I will tell you that the latter part of his life and the legacy that he leaves, not as inspirational as the first part. First part of his life, I would call inspirational. Second part of his life, I'd call instructional. Uh, what not to do. You know, God will include in the Bible the good things about people's lives and the bad things about people's lives so that we can learn from both. We can be inspired and encouraged and follow the example of the good things that we see in people's lives, but then we would also learn from the bad things about people's lives, what not to do, how not to live. And Gideon has both. Gideon has both the inspirational part of the first half of his life and the instructional part, not so good. The second part of his life. And the main takeaway from today's study, I'll just tell you right up front, the main takeaway is this. Finish well. Finish well. It really doesn't matter as much what kind of a start you got. What matters is that you finish well. That's what matters most. Gideon got off to a great start, but he did not finish well. We'll look here in chapter 8, starting at verse 22. And read down through the end of the chapter. Just follow along as I read. Judges 8, starting at verse 22. It says, The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites, also known as the Midianites, to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Listen, by the way, you know you're wealthy if your camels have bling. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the camels have bling. And they got it as part of the plunder when they defeated the Midianites. Well, verse 27 says, Gideon made the gold that he had collected into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. It says, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Jeroboam, that's another name for Gideon. We'll say why in a moment. Jeroboam, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had 
many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash and Ophrah of the Abizarites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. These were the gods of the Canaanites. They set up Baal Berith, which translates Lord of the Covenant, as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. So, as we take a look at the latter years of Gideon's life and legacy, they were marred by two things. His life and his legacy were marred by two things. The first thing here we see in the passage is idolatry. Idolatry. After Gideon's successful military campaign against the Midianites, man, the people of Israel, they are so excited about Gideon. They say to him in verse 22, we read it a moment ago, we want you to come rule over us. We want you to rule over us, be our king. I mean, they are just so excited about him. They are just all enthralled with him like schoolgirls after Justin Bieber. I mean, they are just, they're giddy for Gideon. Let's just put it that way, all right? They are giddy for Gideon, and they're like, rule over us, be our king, your son and your grandsons, which, by the way, there's no evidence in the story that he even has yet sons or grandsons. But what they're saying basically is rule over us and your descendants too. You've done such a great job, we just want you to be our king, and we want your descendants to rule over us as well. Now, Gideon's reply is a good one. He says in verse 23, look at it. He says, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Good answer, Gideon. He says, look, I'm not going to be your king. I'm not going to be your king. God is to be your king. I won't rule over you. My descendants won't rule over you. God is to rule over you. He and he alone is to be your king. That's wonderful. Great answer, Gideon. I wish he had stopped there. The next thing out of his mouth is, but I do have one tiny request. I would like it if each of you would take an earring, a ring of gold from the plunder. You know, you guys helped me defeat the Midianites and we gathered the spoils of war and so each of you have some gold because of the plunder and I would like it if you could each just donate a golden earring to me and so they spread out a garment the Bible says they're willing to do it they say oh we'll do that no problem no problem at all because we just we think you're the greatest and so they bring him each a ring a gold ring pile it up here in this garment Bible says that it totals 1700 shekels now, some of your footnotes have calculated the weight, and your footnotes might say 43 pounds. And actually, depending on the measurement in these ancient times, it could be anywhere from 43 to 50 pounds of gold that he collected. Now, it's not that I'm heavily invested in gold, but just for the purpose of our study, I looked to see what gold closed at on Friday. It's about $1,350 an ounce, okay? So in modern equivalent, what he collected there was about a million dollars. He got a million dollars of gold from the people. And the Bible says, what does he do with it? He takes it and he fashions it into an ephod. That's verse 27. An ephod. You can circle the word. What is an ephod? An ephod was part of the official dress of the high priest. It was a piece of clothing. 
An ephod was a vest that the high priest would wear. First time we are introduced to the ephod, it is in Exodus 28. God gives instruction to Moses about how he is to fashion the ephod for the high priest to wear. God is very meticulous in his instructions there in Exodus 28. He says to Moses, as you were to take fine linen and the color of gold, purple, blue, and red thread, and you were to weave this beautiful vest that the high priest is to wear called an ephod, and it is to be embroidered in gold as well. But it is this vest that the high priest would wear. This is a very bizarre thing here because Gideon is, first of all, not a priest, He has no need for an ephod. And second of all, this is to be a piece of clothing. This is not to be something made out of gold like a statue. But that's what he does. And we don't know the motives here. What are Gideon's motives behind why he would take this gold and make an ephod out of it? Make this vest of gold, if you will, kind of as a trophy. We don't know the motives behind it. One thing we do know, verse 27 tells us. The people started worshiping it as an idol. It says they started worshiping it as an idol. Now, look, we've seen this kind of thing before, haven't we? Whenever somebody says, why don't you put out a picnic blanket and throw a bunch of gold into it and let me make something with it, it's never going to turn out good. You remember Mount Sinai? And Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and he's so long in coming down, the people said, you know, where's Moses? And Aaron says, well, I don't know, but let's just do this. Why don't you give me all your gold, we'll put it into a big pot, I'll melt it, stir it up, and make something with it. And he makes a golden calf out of it, and the people start worshiping this. It becomes an idol. Moses comes down off the mountain, he's like, bro, what have you been doing while I'm gone? He's like, I don't know, the people threw their gold in the pot, and out came this golden calf. Don't look at me. Of course we're looking at you. You're the one that fashioned it. You're the one that made this thing. And now the people are worshiping it. So haven't they learned anything here? They throw their gold together in a picnic blanket. Of course it's going to become an idol. And that's exactly what happens here. The people start worshiping it. And verse 27 again, look at it. It says, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. If you have a King James Bible, it says it a little more graphically. All Israel went a-whoring after it because it's this indication of this spiritual depravity. The people have sunk into idolatry. They're not worshiping the Lord. What are they worshiping? A golden vest. This is laughable. All of Israel falling down, worshiping a golden vest. But before you laugh, consider we do some laughable things too with our idols. We have idols? For sure we do. You know what I'm talking about. You double park your idol so that your doors don't get dinged. (laughs) You chase around your boyfriend idol or your girlfriend idol, a.k.a. stalking. (laughs) We have idols that we make out of money, possessions, popularity, pleasure. For goodness sakes, in America, we even have a show called Idol. You know what I'm saying? There's idolatry. I think it was Calvin who said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Anything that we begin to worship and esteem more than God is, in effect, an idol. We have to be very careful about idols in our own lives. So before we laugh too much at these people, as silly as it seems, they're worshiping a golden vest of all things, there's a few things that we've propped up above God, if we're honest, that we need to tear down in our own lives. And also verse 27 says, 
that it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Circle the word snare. It is the Hebrew word mokesh. M-O-Q-E-S-H. Mokesh. And mokesh in the Bible is a word that is used for a snare or a trap or a noose for catching animals. And how telling this is. Because in reality, idols, they trap us. They trap us. We become captive to our idols. And so did Gideon and his family. And the sad thing is that in spite of the fact that all Israel is worshiping this and it's becoming a snare to Gideon and his family, he does nothing about it. He perpetuates idolatry by the fact that he makes the idol to begin with and then he does nothing to dismantle it when the people start worshiping it. Now, it's not as if he lacks the courage to do it because actually, and we didn't talk about this, but back in chapter 6, you don't need to turn, but back in chapter 6, it tells us that Gideon actually came from a family of idolaters, that his father had an altar to Baal and had also put up a pole in honor of Asherah, that's the male and female god and goddess of fertility that the Canaanites worshipped. The Bible says in Judges 6 that Gideon's father was an idol worshiper. And one of the first things that the Lord said to Gideon when God called Gideon up as a judge of Israel, one of the first things God said to Gideon is, I want you to smash your father's altars. I want you to tear down his Asherah pole and I want you to break up his altar to Baal. And the Bible says that Gideon did it in the cover of night because it says he was afraid of his family, but nevertheless he did it. So Gideon knows about idols and he knows how to smash them, and he knows how to worship the true and living God, and here he does nothing about it. He actually makes the idol, the people worship it, and he doesn't do anything about it. And idolatry here becomes something that mars the life and legacy of Gideon. The second thing that we see in this story is not only idolatry, but adultery. In verse 29... It says Jerob Baal. Now, again, that's another name for Gideon. And he got that name because when he smashed his father's altars to Baal, the people of Israel wanted to kill young Gideon. And his father actually defended him and said, well, listen, he smashed the altar to Baal, but Baal's big enough to kill Gideon if Baal wants to. And so they named him Jerob Baal, meaning let Baal contend with him. And so he still has this name attached to him, but this is Gideon, Jeroboam. Of course, Baal never did anything because Baal isn't a real god. Jeroboam, verse 29, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had, notice, many wives. Well, of course he did. Of course he had many wives. Why? Because he had 70 sons. One woman is not going to push all those boys out. Not one. You're going to have to have many to have 70 sons. Now, the Bible doesn't say how many, but do a little math. You have 70 sons, not even counting the daughters. You have 70 sons. If one wife has five sons, he has at least 14 wives. Maybe it was one son per wife. Maybe he has 70 wives. We don't know. Just says he has a lot here. And please note, polygamy was never acceptable to God. Polygamy was never acceptable to God. Now, sometimes, you know, Bible critics and people who are skeptics about Christianity, they'll point to polygamy in the Old Testament, and they'll talk about, they'll discredit, they'll find anything to discredit the Bible, and they'll say, you know, here, this is so weird because God seems to accept polygamy in the Bible, and 
You know, and so what's up with a God like that? God never accepted it, never condoned it. Please note, just because God didn't always address every single sin issue, don't interpret his silence to mean that he condoned it. He didn't condone it. If he punished or killed people for every sinful behavior, the human race would have been wiped out by now. He would have killed everybody by now. The fact is that God had an original design and a prescribed definition for marriage, and it was to be a man and a woman, and it wasn't to be a plurality of people. It was to be one man and one woman. In Genesis 2.24, that's where God first spells it out when he creates Adam and Eve. He says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and the two shall be united and shall become one flesh. Jesus reiterates and reinforces this in the New Testament when he quotes from Genesis' account in Matthew 19. I'll read it. Matthew 19, 4 to 6. Haven't you read, Jesus said, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Singular. Just like Genesis 2, 24 said. Not plural, not sister wives, okay? Wife. Singular. And the two will become one flesh, not the many, not the several. Two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And Jesus restates the Genesis account, God's original design for marriage, one man, one woman, not a multitude of people. Polygamy was something that God never condoned. His original design was one man and one woman. So... Why didn't God punish a man for having several wives? Because it was punishment enough. <laughs> now listen, don't let the sisters get all riled up. I don't mean it against just the sisters. I mean it against the whole scene, the whole family. Listen, come on back. Tell me one situation in the Bible where a man with several wives worked out wonderfully. Give me one story in the Bible where that worked out really well. You won't find it. Never worked out well because they went against God's prescribed design. You look at Abraham. Abraham has Sarah and Hagar. How'd that work out? Sarah and Hagar. Because whenever you have a multitude of wives like this, you always have the three C's. You have chaos, conflict, and cat fights. Okay? Every time in the Bible, you got one of those or a multitude of them, a mixture. And Sarah and Hagar didn't get along. It's what we call today the Middle East conflict, okay, as a result. You look at the life of Jacob. Jacob marries two sisters, Rachel and Leah, has a couple of concubines too. And Rachel and Leah, there's this jealousy, there's this infighting, there's this contention in the home. Because the Bible says in the Genesis account that Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, a lot of commentaries are debating what the weak eyes means about Leah. It can either mean that she had blue eyes, which would have been an anomaly in the day for Middle Eastern people, or it could mean she had weak eyes in the sense she had poor vision. But in the verse, it's a contrasting statement. It says Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was beautiful and lovely in form. And most believe that the weak eyes means really that she was hard to look at. I'm not making it up. She was kind of hard in the eyes. In fact, Leah, no offense to those of you who may be named Leah, in Hebrew, Leah means wild cow. (laughs) 
And in the story, Rachel is all mad because Leah, her sister, is having a bunch of baby boys and Rachel is barren. She goes to Jacob and she's like, what's up with a cowgirl over here? She can have a bunch of kids and I can't even have any kids. Give me some kids or I'll die. And Jacob looks at her and says, woman, am I responsible for you having children? It works okay with me and Leah. It's not me. And there's this all this infighting and bickering. It's terrible. Throughout the book of Judges, God was with the nation of Israel. When they were following him, God's blessing flowed and filled their land. When they turned away from him, he didn't abandon them, but instead brought forth judges to help them see the error of their ways and how life with him was so much better. This cycle of living that the Israelites fell into is what we've been studying with Pastor Gary Hamrick. And we're so glad you joined us again today. Here at Cornerstone Connection, we love being able to share God's Word with you and learning with you what God has to teach us. If you'd like to hear more from the book of Judges or the number of other Bible books Pastor Gary has taught through, you'll find them at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We also have companion resources that offer an even deeper look into these studies, which you can use to enhance your own time with God in His Word. Cornerstone Connection comes to you as a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia, and we'd love to meet you in person. Come see us Sundays at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. for our time of worship and Bible study. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today, but join us again for another step into the lives of the Israelites right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.